Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, happy Monday. Happy Monday, how are you doing? Well, I am still very much so in Ireland and it's raining here. So I am as good as can be expected considering I've not seen my husband in four weeks. But but when are you going back, back to London? I am booked for the 12th. So I'd like to ask anyone listening to this to like say a prayer, light a candle. My understanding is at this point in time, I have to have a negative PCR test before I can travel. I think that we've touched on this before, maybe not, but I certainly didn't know this. You continue to test positive for COVID for up to 12 weeks after you've had COVID. So I stopped being contagious on the 31st of December, but I am likely to probably continue to test positive until March. Wow. So my mother-in-law is a nurse and she texted my husband and was like, you're not going to see Phoebe before March, which I'm really hoping isn't going to be the case. But I've got to get a negative PCR test before I travel, unless there's some kind of doctor's note. Again, if anyone knows, I feel like all of the information around COVID is also so contradictory and not totally clear. But the other pain is that I have to pay for my COVID tests before I can travel. So I have to get to those three days before. They're like 130 euro. Anyway, this is a huge like tangent that I didn't intend to go on. But basically... It looks like I will likely spend quite a lot of money on COVID tests before I'm able to get the flight back to London. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. Can you cover it with your insurance or no? I don't believe so. Certainly every kind of flight that we've had cancelled and every difficulty that we've faced over the past year, <laughs> our insurance company has been very like, oh, God, we have no control over this because it's a global pandemic. So I don't know if I've got particularly bad insurance, but... <laughs> when I needed the test, my insurance did cover a test oh that's good yeah they covered a test with someone but then we needed it in 24 hours so then we still paid without the insurance Mm -hmm. to get it back in 24 hours but the insurance version was getting it back in like 48 Mm -hmm. to 72 hours so maybe check because that might be a way because I was thinking about this and I was like wow these tests are so expensive Luckily, you know, I don't have a family of four yeah. that I need to get over a border because the mm-hmm. tests are really expensive. So hopefully that can be can be sorted out. It's so strange. I feel like over the past few weeks, I've gotten a real kind of front seat tour to the minutiae of all of these things like COVID, like Brexit. I have to tell you the wildest story. OK, so my husband's a hairdresser. I've said that before. He traveled with his scissors over to Ireland just because like no one's been able to see a hairdresser you know how it is. So he's going to do my family's hair, blah, blah, blah. I obviously ended up staying on for longer because my family were sick with COVID. So he flew back after his whatever third negative test on the 2nd of January. And then I needed to send his scissors back, essentially. And obviously, as time has gone on, and it's been totally unclear when I was going to be able to fly back, I was like, okay, I'll courier them, because you can't post them because they're scissors, blah, blah, blah. On to the next. DHL arrive, they collect the scissors. And then for those of you who don't know, like genuine hairdressing equipment is really expensive. And so I often hear people be like, oh, I've got a pair of hairdressing scissors at home. Like I just trim my own fringe, whatever. No, you don't. Okay. Because hairdressing scissors are about 600 pounds. So I'm sending this over with DHL, gotten it insured, whatever. It's 55 pounds for me to send it from here to my home address. Got to fill out 
like six different forums because now we've Brexited. So it's a big pain for guys like to me. You know, it's as much hassle to send it to Australia as it is to send it to the UK right now. But anyway, all done and dusted. I get a message from my husband the next day being like, hey, what is this? And it's a screenshot from DHL telling him that he needs to pay import tax of £155 before he can collect the courier parcel that I've sent over to him because of Brexit. So basically, all of you that voted leave, we need reparations. You and I do have a cash app. <laughs> I have I have a cash app, right? So I need reparations because this is crazy. Right. Like, honest to God, £200 just to send Mrs. back. It is wild. And it's this kind of minutiae that we were totally not anticipating. Additionally, Obviously, I'm feeling the brunt of this because I'm still in Ireland right now. Roaming just stopped. So I can no longer, like, I was like to my husband, do not call me. I will call you. I will let you know when I'm available to speak, which is an impact that a lot of people, I think, won't experience until we're actually able to do things like travel or, well, travel predominantly again. But that is going to be a massive headache for members of the UK. Well, at least we get the blue passports. I think that's the most important thing. Thank God. (laughs) So anyway, that's everything that's been going on with me. (laughs) What about you? How's your week been? So my week last week was actually very, very stressful for a number of reasons. But one of the key reasons was all of this drama that's happened with GameStop, stock. Well, they're calling them meme stocks, actually. There was a lot of drama. Hopefully you don't live under a rock, right? But if you do live under a rock, there was basically a hostile takeover. It all started with a Reddit subgroup called Wall Street Bets. And you've got a guy in the Wall Street Bets chat group that basically did some research, looked at the GameStop stock and realized that it was being heavily shorted by hedge funds. And they were discussing all of this in the Reddit group. And they were like, you know what, let's pump up this stock. Let's all invest in GameStop. So they invested in GameStop. They invested in some other stocks and the markets went crazy last week. And I ended up investing in one of these stocks called AMC. So I invested in AMC Entertainment and it was just a wild ride last week. So obviously Phoebe and I are not investment professionals, So we're not going to break this down from a technical aspect, but I think it's the principle of platforms stopping their users from buying certain stocks, which is what happened with GameStop, AMC and some of these other meme stocks that they're calling them. So basically platforms such as Robinhood and all these other investment platforms prevented users from buying the stock and you were then in the position where you could only sell it, which Mm -hmm. basically started crashing these stocks. So we've said before, you know, we talk about whether or not we talk about specific investments and the investment marketplace. We talk a lot about wealth and where it's kept and where it's trapped and the barriers that it creates for people. And I think what was so interesting to see as this was playing out in real time was that you know, the top 1% will always protect themselves. They will always rally and money is the biggest unifier in that regard and for some of our listeners like Jules and I have worked in fintech and tech and financial data for 
various years and you know have varying levels of of exposure and knowledge of it but as she said we're not going to do the intricacies of you know what it looks like I have seen a lot of very helpful memes online quite honestly mm-hmm. breaking it down about you know what it looks like when you short essentially it means that you borrow somebody else's shares with the understanding that the price is going to drop on them so that when you buy those shares back to return them to your broker you will have made a profit the risks are limitless because obviously stocks can just continue to rise forever, whereas they can only drop to zero. We can take a step back and look at the GameStop company, right? And Mm -hmm. I don't know if our listeners remember the game, which was basically a shop that was in like Hammersmith Mall. So one of my mates, when we were like teenagers, used to work at the game store. And essentially this is a bricks and mortar store that Mm -hmm. sell games consoles, Mm-hmm. And so if you're shorting a stock, you're basically betting against that stock. You know, it's a bricks and mortar store. People don't have to go and buy video games anymore. They can just download the video games. So they're looking at this like, mate, this business is going to go down. That was their logic. Mm-hmm. But then when you looked a bit deeper into GameStop, their stores were cash flow positive mm-hmm. and they had you know, new person joined the board and they were saying that we need to really be more aggressive about our online strategy. And so the guys in the Wall Street Bets group were like, wait, it doesn't make sense that you have shorted more than 100% of the stocks, like the numbers are not adding up. And the irony of it is that they always say, you need to invest. Why don't these poor people invest? Why don't you do this? They've always been dangling the markets like a carrot, Mm -hmm. right? But nobody foresaw something like this happening where amateur investors would basically take control Mm -hmm. and dictate the momentum of specific stocks. That was not in anyone's plan, right? Um, So I think that's part of why, like you said, institutional investors, media as well, like have turned against, Mm -hmm. you know, these retail investors. What I kept thinking was that it was like Les Mis, like you really had a do you hear the people sing moment. Um, Because I think as well, you know, we talk about financial literacy and one of our last episodes before Christmas was about why that's so important for women and career progression and everything like that. And the reason that that financial literacy is not available to people is because we hold the kind of the, the financial education We put it on such a pedestal that it's like, oh, listen, you could never hope to understand what goes on in a hedge fund. And you see it now, as you said, in like the mainstream media and the way they're talking about Wall Street bets is so disparaging because it's like unfathomable that just normal people could have taught themselves how to invest in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And that's my biggest or one of my my gripes with this whole situation, because they, they keep saying, oh, amateur investors They keep calling them meme stocks. And, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, what's the difference between Wall Street bets taking a position and then people's sentiment around GameStop changing and deciding that's where they want to invest Mm -hmm. compared to someone like Kathy Woods, who is a successful institutional investor that made all of these positive predictions about Tesla. You know, a lot of what Kathy Woods has said has driven the positive sentiment around Tesla. So -hmm. what's the difference between her doing it and you know a bunch of people online doing it like this is legal there is no mm-hmm. issue with this yeah. so it really is like just a class issue it's like you guys are not in the club so yeah. you don't have the right to do this and if you do this it's despicable right but we can do it yes I'm so glad that you said the class issue because I do think that that plays such a huge part in it because as well what you have is 
as this stock rose and as these amateur investors started making money, you had a situation where this money was having such a real significant impact on these people's lives. When I read those posts and I saw people using their gains to pay off student loans and to pay off medical debt, that's when I said, I'm in power to the people. Look at the context of the world that we're in today. No money, Mm -hmm. no future in America, no healthcare, Mm -hmm. right? People are really, really desperate. And I think that they've been pushed to the point where they're like, you know what, I am actually going to teach myself how to invest in the markets. What other option do I have? Mm -hmm. And there was a crazy clip I saw, and I think I shared it with you, and it was basically a dubbing of like a scene from the Joker, the new Joker movie. And then the Joker was saying, yeah, I decided to bet my whole life savings on it, not like I'm going to be able to retire anyway. And so people are at that point where they don't really have anything to lose. It's so sad because it's been such a hard year. And like before this year, it's been a hard year for a lot of people. Some people never you know, recovered from the financial crisis in 08. There are areas of America which we, you know, consider to be capital of the world, where, as you said, people don't have healthcare, people are living in abject poverty. And I just feel like it was really needed for people to realise that they can mobilise en masse and Mm -hmm. have an impact like this. Because Financial freedom is your barrier to everything else. And I hate, like, one of my least favourite things is when people come out with trite nonsense, like, money doesn't buy you happiness. Because actually, it absolutely does. It buys you (laughs) safety, it buys you security, it buys you food. It buys you healthcare. Healthcare. It pays for your electricity and your heating. And, you know, I just, I'm sick of pretending that if we were all just a bit more altruistic, that we wouldn't be so obsessed with money because it makes the world go round. And unless you're prepared to dismantle the whole system and we start bartering with shells or rocks or whatever, the fact is that we need money to survive and that you would decry poor people for not having money and then also try to decry them when they've gotten money but they've shafted you to get it is just so immoral. (laughs) Yeah, personally, I think it's immoral. I think what happened in terms of the platform stepping in and stopping trading, I think that's immoral. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in seeing how things play out for Robinhood. And so for those of you that don't know, Robinhood is an online brokerage. And, you know, with COVID and everything that's happened, millions of users flocked to Robinhood. And Robinhood is actually expected to IPO this year. So they're a private company. They are expected to become a public company this year. It's one of the most anticipated IPOs of 2021. And the IPO was meant to be crazy because Robinhood have a really strong, engaged, radical following. And they built their brand around Robinhood, mm-hmm. take from the rich and give to the poor, right? Democratizing access to the markets. That was the whole Robinhood brand. And I was even waiting for Robinhood to come to the UK. <laughs> I was like, the UX looks so good. Can't mm-hmm. wait for Robinhood to come to the UK. Right now, the platform I use is very, very archaic and old. It's a boomer platform. <laughs> so I was super excited about Robinhood. And mm-hmm. they're now in a situation where because they stepped in, everyone's rose-tinted glasses you know, has come off. Mm-hmm. So Robinhood's USP is that they are a commission-free platform. 
And so what's happened with Robin Hood stepping in, everyone is like, oh my God, what's going on? And so there's a whole conversation around the fact that if you're a user of the Robin Hood platform, you are not their customer, you are their product. What Robin Hood do is basically take the data, you know, all the trades that's happening on their platform, they basically sell it to their institutional partners like Citadel, right? So Citadel mm-hmm. is Robin Hood's number one customer. And basically all the users on the platform are basically the product. So people are turning against Robin Hood now. And there are like class action lawsuits that have been filed after last week. But what they've really done, as you said, Jules, is decimate their own USP. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wonder, will there be a huge re-strategization on the part of Robin Hood? Because I saw something about, you know, the CEO giving an interview and then succeeding in raising about a billion worth of capital not long after the interview had aired. So Yeah, but where but where did he raise that from? Yeah, oh no, exactly. This is what I'm saying. That won't be from the people. That is from his one percent. Because yeah, that's... he will re strategize and be like, actually, this is the group that I want to cater to. I'm interested to see. Yeah, I'm interested to see what happened to Robin Hood. I think they have a big target on their back mm-hmm. at IPO now. Yeah. Basically, in terms of I think the profile of retail investors has really changed due to this pandemic Mm -hmm. and all the content around, you know, financial literacy has gone through the roof. There will be winners and there will be losers, Mm -hmm. right? I invest, I don't sort of recommend everybody go and start investing. I think you need to really invest in yourself and make sure you are educated on what it is that you're doing. Before the traditional profile of a retail investor is, you know, you invest in your pension and then there's a big movement around like index funds. Mm Choosing specific stocks was seen as, and is still seen as, very, very, very high risk. And so you didn't really have like retail investors actively investing in that space. Even in the UK, when you look at stocks and shares ISAs, it's only like between 10 to 15% of the ISA market mm-hmm. are stocks and shares ISAs. Like a lot of people don't even leverage their stocks and share ISA. I people don't. still use, yeah, exactly. People still just use cash ISAs. So then let's say only about 10 to 15 people are using stocks and shares ISAs, then there's probably going to be a higher percentage of those people that just invest passively. So Mm -hmm. they'll just invest in funds rather than choosing specific stocks that they like. Even when people pick stocks that they like, they will pick big companies that they're using on a day to day if they can afford to, because Amazon is an expensive stock. They'll be like, all right, I want Amazon. I want some Apple. Initially, when I my first stock I ever bought was Nike. Because I'm like, I need to get some of my money back because I buy a lot of Nike, right? And so things have really, really changed where you've got a retail investor like me that will go and buy an AMC. Mm-hmm. A retail investor like me that will say, I'm buying Tesla, I'm never going to sell. I have a really strong point of view on the companies that I've invested in. And I didn't have that point of view before the pandemic. And I think things have just moved so quickly in the retail space that the institutional investors didn't see it coming. Like they didn't see it coming that like, wow, this guy is going to be in a Reddit group and he's going to mobilize two million people. There were two million people in that Reddit group. And then you can go and take a stock from two dollars to five hundred dollars within a short space of time. How do you pull that back? Now that people have the knowledge, right, you can't stop them, but you can change the rules, right, which is basically what happened last week. 
And I think that you will see the rules changing because we don't want to democratise financial security. We need people to be poor. And I hate saying things like that because I think you sound like such a conspiracy theorist, but it's true. That money wants to be kept in that upper strata and it just gets passed around that level. There's no trickle-down economics here. (laughs) That's not how it operates. But I don't think it's sustainable, right? I think a couple of weeks ago, you had all this stuff happening in the capital. I don't condone violence. It was absolutely crazy. And ideologically, of course, it's perhaps different. But I think ultimately what happened with the markets last week and it's continuing to happen, you know, this is you can't roll it back. It is people taking a stand against the establishment. Mm -hmm. And when I was looking at what happened with the platforms, it also made me think about, you know, Donald Trump being banned from Twitter, being banned from Facebook. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when that happened, I'm not for Donald Trump being banned off the platforms. Like when they banned him I thought okay but why didn't you ban him before mm-hmm. like why are you banning him now mm-hmm. right it's not politically expedient for you now because you've got a new government coming in and you need to get cozy to those guys people are okay with censorship and people are okay with corporations and the government stepping in if it's aligned with their ideological views and that's why we're going to go around in circles forever because there isn't like an overall position on what's right and what's wrong mm-hmm. it depends on your politics I think though one of the things that It's like a realisation that I myself have been having that, you know, I have a podcast. I run this podcast with you. We've been doing it for over a year now. So I'm not trying to sound like a hypocrite. I'm also on Instagram. I'm also on Clubhouse, on Facebook, all of that kind of stuff. But sometimes I think, why do we all, because of the society that we live in now and because of how things have changed so much, we are all of the impression that what I have to say is so important. I got to let people know what I think. And Someone in Texas and someone in Portimao needs to know what I in particular think of this. And it's like, listen, that is it's how we developed. It's obviously like that is how we communicate now. But this thing of like, oh, I'm being censored. It's like, listen, freedom of speech is not freedom of consequence. Yeah. And that's, I think, the inextricable difference that people fail to kind of recognize a lot of the time. What I think is wild, specifically about Donald Trump, just following up on that point that you made, they shut down his social media presence and he just went. We literally haven't heard a peep from him. There was no like, oh, I'm going to put out an official statement via my press office or, you know, I'm going to speak to a publication or whatever. He was just like, if I can't tweet, then I'm not telling you. (laughs) how weird is that yeah but I think what happened at the Capitol was so bad like he went so far Mm. with that like he went way too far and then obviously with this second impeachment happening I think that he's being advised to shut up yeah and maybe he's listening yeah because he doesn't have the presidency to shield him now yeah 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 because he's been told to shut up a lot yeah but I think for me the reason why it's important and I think that with human beings, human beings do want to feel like they're listened to and they want mm-hmm. to feel like they're understood. And that's on a certain level, but then obviously on a, on a base level, people need to have their basic needs met. Mm-hmm. So if the basic needs of people are not being met. And then on top of that, they don't feel like they are being listened to. And then life becomes so hard. Mm-hmm. People do revolt. Yeah. You know, and luckily there's, you know, it's not a bloodbath, right? But Something is happening where people are just like... Enough. People are saying enough is enough. It's really, really tricky because, you know, Trump is a hateful person. 
I think when things are handled the way they've been handled, which is like, oh, yeah, we're going to censor this person. We're going to say that everybody that supports them is racist Mm -hmm. and is an awful person. Basically, these things go underground. Mm -hmm. The conversations still happen. Yeah. But I think that people become more and more radicalized. Mm -hmm. Because the conversations themselves happen in secret. So, yeah, Yeah. we're just stirring one another up. Yeah, because things are happening in secret now. I think it makes people become more and more radicalized. And I think that there should be space for people to like express themselves, but like mm-hmm. the expression has just become so crazy. So I don't really have all the answers around it, but I don't believe in, oh, 50% of the population are stupid, racist, et cetera, et cetera. That I don't believe in. Mm-hmm. I think there needs to be a way where you also bring people that you disagree with you need to get them invested in your mission and your message, especially if you're in the government. Hello, <laughs> you can't just leave 50%. You're, you guys are outside and we are inside. Well, and I think also that on a global scale, like politics has become so polarised that you can't yeah. help it. If you align more with one than the other, ideologically, but also very superficially, like there was a lot made of the inauguration. And obviously part of the issue with getting sick and taking a break on recording over Christmas means that so much stuff happened in that kind of four, six week period that when we started recording again, it was like, oh my God, there's so much to catch up on. But there was a lot made of the inauguration and the celebrity aspect of that. Whereas when Trump was inaugurated, he couldn't get any celebrity performers to play a part but you've got Lady Gaga you've got JLo you've got Katy Perry you've got Tom Hanks hosting that kind of inauguration ball for people and you can understand that say you ideologically speaking align with the Democratic Party 60% but that 40% is up for grabs well with all the glitz and glamour that now comes with the democratic party and the artists that you listen to and the actors that you follow i don't think that people are swayed which way to vote by celebrity influence personally but i do think that that facade of glamour and excitement can really be the thing that draws people in not anymore do you not think no i really really don't think so not anymore when times are that hard right it depends on your lifestyle and how comfortable you are I think if you are comfortable, you can sit back and enjoy a Lady Gaga performance. Mm -hmm. But I think that the divide between rich and poor is just becoming so vast. I think things are becoming so extreme. We don't even see the fallout yet. Yeah. But I think if you have a if you have a country like America where you've got a global pandemic and you've got no healthcare for all, the fallout is going to be really, really bad. And so what I think is happening is that the people who are 60 percent on the Democratic side, 40 percent is up for grabs. I think they're going the other way. Interesting. I think they're going away from the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party. I'm one of those people. I had the same issue with Labour in the UK. And what happened with Labour, what's happening with Labour in the UK, is that basically after the whole Jeremy Corbyn situation, where Labour basically turned against Jeremy Corbyn, Mm -hmm. a lot of people have quit the Labour Party and stopped paying their memberships to the Labour Party. And then also you've got the trade unions that just don't have the same relationship with the party anymore. Keir and his friends have basically created a new membership program for the Labour Party, but no one is signing up. Like what they want to do is basically attract people with a high net worth Mm -hmm. to the Labour Party, not happening. Those people are happy with the Tory party and 
Tories are doing quite fine in terms of public sentiment in the UK right now. And I think it's similar in the US where they're like, oh, we want to reach over the aisle and we want to get these like Republican or middle ground people to vote for us. And then you end up neglecting your base. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that because things are so polarised, Lady Gaga is not going (laughs) to attract someone like people are really thinking about education, health and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. No, it's true. And I think it's a good point. I'm often very guilty of thinking of things from the perspective of, you know, my own bubble. And, you know, I was having a conversation with some friends recently about sexuality and identifying and, you know, that kind of labelling that takes place or the issues around coming out as a rite of passage almost. And I was thinking, "Mm, I don't think anyone really cares about these things anymore. And obviously people actually really do, not from a self-identifying perspective where obviously you are entitled to to feel or express yourself however you choose but as in I meant from a oh homophobia isn't even real anymore which is obviously a hyperbolic stance to take but you fail to realize or one can sometimes fail to realize that when that issue doesn't affect you specifically or when you have had the educational journey to be like oh actually this is the defined stance that I have on these things you can neglect to remember other people might not have even started that journey yet other people might not have an interest in starting the journey yet or maybe at a different point in it to you and have come to a different conclusion and this kind of monolithic thought process is dangerous but we all do it I completely agree with you I think it's so easy for us to sort of just see things from our perspective and the perspective of people that we know so for example most of my Friends, people I'm close to are able to work from home in a global pandemic. None of my friends have lost their jobs during this pandemic. This is the minority in the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people have a completely different experience of this pandemic. And so I also think the challenge you have when you look at things through like a political lens and the political lens is really party specific So basically, last week, I was in the Wall Street Bets Telegram, because I'm on Telegram. So I thought, let me join the Wall Street Bets Telegram. And so join the Telegram. And they're like, anyone trying to cause divides, you know, when it comes to race, etc. Like, this is not the group for you. And they were basically trying to get people to narrow down and focus on what their message is, which is coming together as a group and going after specific stocks and sticking it to the establishment, like mm-hmm. sticking it to institutional investors, that's what we're here for. And a lot of the time now what I'm seeing is that people are focusing more on it's the bottom be the top. It's mm-hmm. not a left person be a right person. I think a lot of the time now the conversation is becoming a bit more focused on, I don't want to say focus more on class, but I think there is a growing unity mm-hmm. amongst people who are not a part of the 1%, irrespective of what their background is. That's what I've noticed when I've taken a bit of a dive into the Wall Street bets conversation. And I think the elite are still trying to make it like a a Labour v Tory thing or like a Democratic v Republican thing. And I, I don't think people are wedded to those parties anymore in that way. No, I think that you're right. And I think that, as you said earlier, I think... Like, I'm not. I would say like I'm not. You know, half mm. the time when I look at my left parties, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, I'm black and I'm female. And I don't think that you know, all of Trump's followers are racist, Mm -hmm. you know? I don't think it's that simple, but I think that's a simple message to put out there and keep people divided. 
And I think that COVID has been a massive exacerbation of that. It has expedited the whole process. Maybe we would have gotten there organically, but the disconnect, even, uh, and I would consider myself to be a, a staunch Labour supporter as well, but there was something that I saw on social media and then I couldn't forget it. And it was just like, Keir Starmer never says anything. He waits for the media to dictate the mood and then he'll say something just before Boris says something. So, you know, if it's the case of, oh, schools shouldn't reopen, he'll be saying for weeks leading up to it, you know, we've got to reopen our schools. We've got to get our children back to schools. He'll feel the turning of the tide in the mainstream media saying, why are we sending children back to schools? Why are we sending teachers back into schools? The morning before PMQs, Prime Minister questions, he'll say, we need to know why the Prime Minister wants to reopen our schools. And it's like, but you don't have a stance on anything. Marcus Rashford has done more to feed school children in the UK than Thank either you. party. Thank you. Marcus Rashford has done more for this country than anyone in government right now, mm. in my opinion. And I think that this is why people can't... Firstly, when you look at the Labour Party and what happened to Jeremy Corbyn, when you throw someone under the bus in that way, mm -hmm. people recoil from that. Mm -hmm. There is another way that that could have been handled. And I think that alone is like, mate, I wouldn't want you on my team. You're a bit... You're oh, it's, it's, it's all a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And then on top of it, you have no position. You have no stance. Mm -hmm. You don't advocate for anybody. There is no risk that you take. Yeah. Totally. And if we're in a situation that we have in the UK, I think we need a bit more courageous leadership. And that's why, unfortunately, I just don't see Labour getting it. If we're in a pandemic and we have the highest death rate in Europe, mm -hmm. if we had an election today, Tories would basically win the election. I mean, there's nothing else that you can say. It's literally cows for abattoirs. I don't understand. I don't know what that means. As in, like, <laughs> as in it's cows voting for abattoirs. What's an abattoir? <laughs> it's it's what? where animals go to be killed for meat. Oh, thank you. Thanks for letting me know. I thought that was a slaughterhouse. So okay. <laughs> I mean, it is, but the abattoir is like, I guess, maybe a slightly more sophisticated name. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's cows for slaughterhouses, cows for abattoirs. Like, you are watching this play out again in real time. We are seeing, and like literally, as an aside, this is what, our third lockdown, our fourth lockdown, I don't know. <laughs> Mentally, I am really struggling and I know that I'm not the only person because I said to my husband the other day, like, I don't know when this will end. And this idea that we're all supposed to be relentlessly upbeat for just indefinite periods of time, like, oh, another lockdown. Oh, I still haven't seen my nephew. Oh, I still, you know, I've seen my niece once in the past year. I haven't hugged my granny. I just, you know, and we're just supposed to be like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. So the government's decided that we can all just stay home again. Eat out to help out, but, you know, don't see your friends. Let's not even talk about eat out to help out because no. that was the most disastrous policy that the government could have ever had. Like the correlation between eat out to help out and the COVID death rate is like nuts, right? But yeah, I think it's very, it's, it's becoming very, very tough. Even like for me, I'm just like, whoa, okay. Oh, all right then, another day. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll have like a shower and then blah, like, oh, another shower. <laughs> what else is there Honestly, to do? Like at the height of... My my sister flew back to, to Belgium this morning 
But at the height of everyone in my family being at their sickest, she and I were doing a food shop. Our isolation period had ended and we were like in the fruit and veg aisle, whatever. And she just went, what day is it? And I was like, I don't know. Does it matter? I feel like I'm just in this complete suspension of reality. And what I found is that from a control perspective, the day has to literally be broken into sections for me to get through it. And it's like, I get up in the morning, I go for a walk, then I have my shower, then I make a pot of tea, then I work, and then I stop. Like that's the first third of the day. And then there's the second third, and then the last third of the evening. But it's like, I can't do this forever. Yeah, it's crazy. It is really tough. I mean, we are meant to open up again, I think, at the end of Feb Mm. in London. So we'll just see how that goes. But because not everybody wears masks Mm -hmm. and because people don't social distance, even at the peak that we're in now, people are still like having parties and like hanging out. Yeah, I just anticipate that we're going to be in and out of lockdown for another year, if not another two years, because we don't have a, a culture that's like, oh, we're in a global pandemic, let me stay at home. This is just like not the British culture. The culture is I'm going to do what I want. Yes, that's it. Like we do not have a community culture. It is everyone out for themselves. And that's not said with a huge amount of condemnation because that has been the attitude in the UK for quite some time. So it it wasn't going to change just because there was a global pandemic. Like that, that just is the way that things are. Because, you know, you've got in parts of Eastern Asia they were wearing masks anyway. And I had never realized this. I actually think that we touched on this at the beginning of the lockdown last year. I had never realized that when you saw people wearing masks on public transport, it was because they were sick and they didn't want to get other people sick as opposed to being conscious of germs for themselves. And we don't have that mentality at all. And so I think that with that in mind, yeah, you're right. It is going to continue. It's going to extend past the end of February. Absolutely. It's going to probably extend all the way through this year. And I was talking to a friend recently who is living in Tasmania, one of my best friends, and it was her birthday last Tuesday or two Tuesdays ago. Again, I don't know what date it is or what day it is. But anyway, I was speaking to her after her birthday and, you know, asking her what she got up to. And it was, you know, breakfast and a drive with friends in the morning. They went to a cute little village nearby, had a walk around there, came home, they were having champagne, they were opening presents. She had dinner with friends, they had drinks in the garden, everyone brought food. It was like a real mix and match of like loads of different people hanging out, you know, different friendship groups coming together. And I just found myself thinking, if I had a party now, if we were allowed to have a party now, or when we're allowed to have a party, when all of this is over, will I even have friends to invite anymore? Like, yeah, guys, it is really, 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 really tough. But personally, me, I'm just staying at home. Mm -hmm. It is really tough. And like, I'm not trying to talk out of both sides of my mouth, because like I said, I have found the past few weeks, I've found the relentlessness of this really difficult. And I think I found as well that by the same token, it's frightening to know how serious it can be. It's also overwhelming to be like, oh, my God, there are so many symptoms there are so many repercussions and again like I did not have any symptoms in the normal sense I was nauseous I was throwing up my sisters and I over Christmas were like oh my god do you think you could be pregnant I was like oh my god what a buzz would that be can you imagine finding out that I'm pregnant at home for Christmas with my family 
unfortunately it was covid everyone it was not that but also like i just want to say you know just to go back to what i was saying a bit earlier about you know would i even have friends left at the at the end of this and i'm being again hyperbolic but I think it is important to note that we all have a limited amount of bandwidth. And, you know, at the beginning, we were Zooming ourselves silly and like constantly on FaceTime and constantly texting. And it is okay that now, if you need permission, this is permission from me, basically, that it is okay if you are exhausted from doing all of that. And I said to a friend recently, she, you know, we were talking, she said, I miss you. And I said, I miss you too. And then I get stressed thinking about when am I actually going to see you? And when I see you, I don't even have anything to tell you because nothing's happened over the past year. Like, you know, there's no silly anecdotes or silly gossip. And she basically said, you know, we'll always pick up where we left off, which is sometimes I think what you need to hear, because we are all putting the pressure on ourselves to not only continue working at the same rate that we were working before, but also have like this incessant online presence just so that you're like checking in with people or being visible. And it's tough, basically. You know, friendship is two-way. Communication Mm. is two-way. And so I think when I see things like fall away, I'm just like, okay, is what it is. Yeah. And I I do... It has to be a level, it's hard, but you have to also accept that, you know, things don't always last forever. And some friends that you got to see so organically didn't require maintenance because you just saw them, whether it was that you trained with them or that you saw them every day at work or that, you know what I mean? Not every friendship is an online friendship. This is something I feel like so strongly about, but I feel that I would have never realized it until this past year. Some friends are friends that you just like interact with on Instagram and you're literally just sending one another memes and that's absolutely fine like you can still meet up and have a drink and have a laugh or sometimes you see each other every three four months and you go for dinner and that's it and you're still all good it's now everyone has been shifted into an online friend category and some people don't want to be in that category and you don't want to have some people in that category it's stressful because now the the level of maintenance is almost it's through the same medium for everyone (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that's so true but you know there's so much to deal with on a daily basis I would just focus on what's in front of you Mm -hmm. and do the best that you can and you know people that care about you will understand but it's all about taking care of yourself Mm -hmm. mentally first mentally and physically really try and take care of yourself and then hopefully we all emerge from this for me well I plan to emerge from this better than before (laughs) that's it I think that there's a lot going on mentally for people and obviously this is again you know talking about all of the the money stuff the career stuff you know where you're at mentally right now I will say you know despite everything I've said about it's a difficult time and mentally it is totally a struggle the fact that there is no end in sight in some ways is a good thing because you know I just I just said to myself Okay, there's no excuse now for continuing to put things off. For a lot of people, 2020 was a bit of a write-off because we didn't know what was going on. We were so emotionally susceptible to the peaks and troughs. But now, guys, we are probably at home for another year. So if you are learning a language or learning an instrument or sitting an exam, I'm afraid you still have to do it this year. (laughs) 
you must do it because this is the foreseeable. So yeah, this is the foreseeable, and you know, if you are bored, if you do have downtime, listen to the other episodes of Jules and Phoebe. <laughs> Absolutely, rank your top five episodes from twenty twenty. <laughs> reach out to us give us feedback let us know what you want to hear um we would love to hear from you you can find us on at jules phoebe on instagram and if you're looking for an organic way to reconnect with a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while send them an episode of the podcast as well and ask them to listen yes that's such good advice share the podcast with a friend guys thank you so much for listening have a great week bye bye